0: All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you guys for worship. It's good to be with you. Man, I'll shoot straight with you. There are way more people here than I thought there were going to be on July 4th. You should see the block dates on Planning Center. It's looked like the fact that anyone is here is amazing to me right now. So... It's good to be with you. Glad to worship with you this morning. Uh, If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, Glad that you would join us. And if there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, we would genuinely love to do that. We'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged in. Uh, We'd love for this to be a place where you worship and and follow Jesus together. And so come find us, someone who looks like they know which direction the bathrooms are around here, and uh, we'd love to help you get plugged in. So Uh, Excited to continue our series walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've been gone or if you're just here for the first time, let me briefly just catch you up on where we've been. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And Corinth was this incredibly important port city in the ancient world. Uh, Because of its location, it controlled a a huge amount of the east-west trade between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so it was incredibly wealthy and important and influential but it was also a new city. It was a city that Rome had conquered and then destroyed, let sit for a good long while, and decided they wanted to resettle with people loyal to Rome. And, and so they have a city that's full of people who are newly settled. It's a city, it's kind of like a, a new city with new money and new families and new identities. And, and at the heart of what's going on in Corinth, the thing that matters most to everybody, because it's all of these new people coming in to make in these new situations, is that everybody is looking to make a name for themselves. They're looking to make an identity for themselves. They're they're looking to to create for themselves this upwardly mobile status in the world and in society. One commentator sums it up this way. He says that that in Corinth, the, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. See, Corinth was all about you. And that's what everything revolved around in Corinth. And sadly, tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth was no exception. As we've studied the letter, it becomes pretty obvious that their highest priority was not God's glory. It was not the advancing of his kingdom. It was their own glory. and It was the advancing of their own social status in their earthly kingdom. You see, in in this self-focused mindset, this idolatry of self, it was at the heart of pretty much all of the problems that the Apostle Paul has to address in this dysfunctional church. And there are a lot of problems a lot of them. Most recently, we've been talking the last couple of weeks in chapters 8 through 10, we've been seeing how Paul is confronting this self-centered way in which the the Corinthians are exercising their Christian liberties, their freedoms that they have in Christ, as it relates to the context of the broader world around them, and they're doing this in this very self-centered way. You see, there were some in the Corinthian church who were using the freedoms that they had in Christ to engage in their culture in ways that, while not inherently sinful in and of themselves. were were actually having the effect of leading younger and weaker brothers and sisters in Christ back into lives of idolatry and sin, as well as causing their non-Christian neighbors to just infer that that worshiping idols and participating in that just wasn't a problem, wasn't a big deal. Instead of being concerned about how the exercise of their freedoms was negatively impacting others, as you read, the thing that you see is that they're most concerned about trying to get their pastor to affirm that they can do what they want to do. And so while Paul affirms that technically their theology is correct, they are free in Christ to act in all these different kinds of ways, he confronts this underlying selfish attitude of their hearts and he challenges them to, to begin by asking not what they are free to do, but asking what they are free to give up for the good of others. What, what rights and freedoms do they have because of Jesus that they are free and even glad to be able to lay down for the good of others. he's highlighting for them the reality how the mark of Christian maturity isn't in understanding and exercising all your rights and freedoms, but in being willing, even glad, to lay them down for the good of others. And I go over all of that background, not just to catch you up on where we've been at, or, or just to highlight the incredible and timeless relevance of God's word for our lives today, because it's not like we have any kind of problems with selfishness in our world, Right? But I, but I do it to highlight even more so because of how what Paul is saying is directly connected with what he's going to be teaching in these next couple of chapters that we're going to be in in the next few weeks and months. You see, in chapters 11 through 14, Paul transitions from confronting the self-centered ways that the Corinthian believers are exercising their liberties in the context of the broader world around them to confronting the self-centered ways they're exercising their liberties in the context of the worship gathering in specific and the ways that they're gathered, when they gather together for worship, the ways that their self-centered mindset is impacting that. And the first issue that we see this self-centeredness causing problems in their worship gatherings is, on the surface, what we're going to see is that it seems like it has to do just with what they're wearing, with their attire, with some, with some kind of aspect of their clothing, and how they're presenting themselves as they participate in the corporate worship gathering. But the reality is that Paul is actually trying to address something much deeper and more foundational, something much more important. He's actually touching on the importance in this passage of the, the equal and the yet distinct ways that men and women are, are both created and called to reflect God's image and to glorify him. And in a lot of ways, what Paul has to say here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is really kind of a commentary, kind of like an application of Genesis 1 and 2, which is why last week uh, we kind of took a detour out of 1 Corinthians and spent the whole week in Genesis 1 and 2 talking about our identity as image bearers and what that means. And and we don't have time to go over all that we discussed last week, but the the big picture ideas, the foundational principles we highlighted last week in order to set this week up were, were one, that humanity is uniquely made in the image of God. We see that in Genesis one and two which means that in a way that no other part of creation can people are created and called to be and to live as reflections of god's nature and character in the world and this is our primary identity and our primary purpose for which every person ever in all time has been created so if you want to know what your purpose is that's it it's the same for everyone it gets worked out in all different ways but that's our purpose is to be God's image-bearing glory reflections of him. But secondly, we saw how it's not just humanity in general that's created and called in God's to be God's image-bearing representatives, but that men and women specifically and uniquely are called to do that as well. That men and women are created and called to bear God's image in ways that are absolutely equal and yet notably distinct. And this equality and distinction we saw between men and women wasn't just kind of some happy accident. It wasn't just some like, ah, oh, cool, look at how that worked out. We saw in Genesis 1 and 2 it was a necessity because just as there is one God in multiple parts that are characterized by sameness and difference in the midst of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there are also so humanity is created in the image of God has multiple parts, male and female, characterized by both sameness and equality and difference and so it's only when the two genders come together each embracing their equal and yet distinct callings that we show this a full picture of god's image amongst one another and we live on our real true calling as god's people and that framework that that, that framework that we saw last week is so important because what we're going to see Paul doing in our passage this morning is, is fleshing out how the equality and the distinction of men and women impacts what it looks like for us to participate in the corporate worship gatherings in ways that ultimately serve to bring God glory rather than bring glory to ourselves and to, and to point to Him and to draw attention to Him rather than drawing attention to ourselves. And unless we approach what, what God's Word has to say out of that perspective, with that kind of a mindset, with our identity and calling as men and women, as God's image bearer's center stage, then we're just going to be tempted to misread and misapply or just flat out ignore and disregard what God's Word has to say to us this morning. I'll be honest with you, God's, what God's Word has to say, it flies in the face of much of what our culture believes and thinks and prioritizes. And so we're going to need the reality of the goodness and the dignity of our capital P purpose as God's image bearers, front and center, if we're going to be willing not only to to put ourselves under God's good authority, but to see it as good news, to see it as life for us. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage. I know that was a bit long of a setup, but we'll dive in together and go from there. Jesus, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thanks that you love us thanks that you long for us to know you and to love you and to follow you we are so grateful and jesus as we come together this morning uh, on a holiday meant for us to celebrate our freedoms we are so grateful for the freedoms that we have in our country but more so for the freedom that we have because of you jesus and so help us to be a people this morning as we think about the freedoms we have to be willing and glad not just to exercise them but to lay them down for your name and your glory Help us to see that as our ultimate and first priority. And so, Jesus, we just say, without you changing that in us, without you causing that to be true in us, it's not going to happen. It's not our default mode. And so we need you for every part of our gathering. Empower me to teach and preach what is right and true and good in a way that's compelling, not because I am compelling, but because you are Jesus. And help us to respond rightly so that we might live not for ourselves, but for your glory, God. We need you. Thanks that you love to meet us in our need for you. Pray that you would this morning. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. I'll just say it now. Buckle up. It's going to get interesting, okay? All right. Here we are. Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2 begins this way. It says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesizes with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesizes with her head uncovered dishonors her head. In the same, it's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it is not a, uh, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man, and neither was, created, uh, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord the woman is not independent from man, nor is man independent from woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman." But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, then, if it is proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. But does not the very nature of things teach that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. All right. There is a whole lot there this morning, right? Some of you are like, what in the world are we talking about? Like, what... What is going on? Uh, Let's see if we can make some sense of what is happening in our passage, which feels very otherworldly to us. Let's even connect some of those dots this morning and see how God's word might be calling us to live in response to him. So uh, I'll just say this, on our passage, we we don't have time to answer every question the passage raises, not, not even close to enough time, right? And so if you have more questions about this, I want to encourage you to come find me afterwards or shoot me a message, I'd love to process that more with you. But the big idea that we're going to see this morning is that Paul's fleshing out as we start to examine what it looks like for us to to exercise our Christian liberties in the context of the corporate worship gathering is, is this. We're going to see the importance of both men and women in the church choosing to embrace the equal and yet distinct ways that we have been created and called by God to bear his image. The importance of men and women both choosing to embrace the equal and yet distinct ways that we have been created and called by God to bear his image. And to take it one step further, what I'm really excited to show you actually is how for both men and women, doing so is ultimately wrapped up in looking at Jesus. It's ultimately wrapped up in imitating him who who we see in his relationships towards the Father and towards us shows us how both genders are not only created distinctly to bear God's image, but he affirms the dignity and the equality of both. And so I can't wait to show you that as we study. But before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge that I think really tragically and sadly, passages like this have often been used in the New Testament, uh, have often been used in the church in ways that are meant to diminish and to minimize the roles of women in the local church. And I just cannot be more clear on how that is actually the precise opposite purpose of this passage in, in the text. It's like literally the exact opposite thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to accomplish. You see, he, he, he's, he is not trying to keep women from participating in the worship gathering at all. Instead, he's trying to instruct them on how to do it just in a way that doesn't undermine the good God's good design for men and women to function in equal and distinct ways as his representatives. You see, see the New Testament church was, was the most culturally progressive institution in the ancient world when it came to the value and the rights of women. The most progressive. You see, the way that Paul goes out of his way to affirm the equality of women when he talks in verses 11 through 13, right, about how men and women are interdependent, that that men aren't just on their own, aren't good enough on their own, but there's this deep interdependence that Paul talks about there. He goes out of his way to emphasize that. And in the same way that the very posture of him assuming not if women would pray and prophesy and participate and lead within the gatherings, but that they would and when they would, that would have seemed scandalous to both a Corinthian culture in general that viewed women as inferior and less than men, as well as in a Jewish context specifically where women weren't allowed to even be full, part- full members of a synagogue and they had to sit behind a curtain in the back and were prohibited from speaking or participating in that gathering in any way. So very clearly, what Paul is not trying to do is limit the role of women in the corporate gathering. On the contrary, I think the fact that he's giving instruction about how that should happen serves to highlight the reality that in the New Testament, women were not just permitted to participate in those gatherings, but were encouraged to do so and and desired to do so. You see, there is a big difference between permitting women to serve in ministry and pursuing that to happen. You see, it's it's one thing to say that women are permitted to pray or to give announcements or to lead worship or to do all various sorts of kinds of things, and it is quite another to actively pursue having women in those roles within the church. The reality is, is that we want to be a church at River City that does not just permit women to participate in ministry, but that actively pursues that happening. If you were to go through the membership class at River City, one of the things that you'd be asked to do is to read through a number of different positions we have on a m- bunch of important things. And one of those would be our position on women in ministry. And, and what you see, if you read that document through, there's a lot there, we don't have time to get to it all. But the what you think is what you see is that the leaders of River City are committed to actively pursuing, encouraging, empowering, and equipping women to serve and to lead in ministry at River City Church. And I'm not trying to say that we do that perfectly or that we don't have room to grow, but I want you to know that that is the attitude and approach that we want to have as a body of believers together, and especially as leaders of our church. And hopefully you see that getting worked out in obvious ways. Places like here on Sunday mornings where women play all kinds of roles in our gathering. It's not just like if you're a lady, you serve in nursery or something like that, you know? Like there's all kinds of ways that women lead and serve in our gathering, whether that's leading worship or giving announcements or praying or giving testimonies or all different kinds of things we see happening. Also, in our small groups, we have men and women both leading in small groups. It's not like the men are in charge and the women are just kind of like around. Like, no, like that's important that we have men and women both leading in those communities. But this also happens behind the scenes too. We specifically seek out and invite women to receive training and equipping to serve the church in all different kinds of ways, whether that's in worship leading or counseling or discipleship or all different kinds of things. And that's an intentional and deliberate priority that we want to have as leaders in our church. And the reason why we're so committed to pursuing, not just permitting women to serve and lead in our church, isn't because that's politically popular or culturally relevant, but because like we talked about last week, we need men and women together serving in the unique and distinct ways that they've been called to do that in the local church because our purpose as humanity requires that both men and women together are needed to bear God's image fully. And so if it's just a man show around here, what we're doing is we're missing out on the fullness of the image of God. And that is a problem because our very identity and purpose as humans is to be God's image bearing glory reflecting people. You see, we saw in Genesis 2 how man alone was insufficient, incomplete, unable to fully reflect the image of God. He needed a helper. We talked about how that word means a necessary and indispensable ally. And so God created woman to fill in, the, to, to meet the ways that men lack. And so there is a need for both of us. In the passage, we don't have time to do a deep dive on this, one, but when Paul is talking here about woman came from man, and woman is for man, and the glory of man, and all that kind of stuff, essentially what Paul is getting at, the underlying idea, he's saying that man did, was not enough on his own, and that he needed, that God needed both men and women together if he was going to be their image-bearing people, that there's a necessity to both of those things, that there was a lack in just men that women together, along with men, fulfill. And so it's only when men and women come together in the equal and distinct ways that God created and called us that we're able to present a kind of full picture of the image and the glory of God. And, and that brings us to kind of the big idea that, we're, that we want to get at our passage this morning. You see, because while the reality is that while the Corinthian believers were rightly embracing the equality of men and women by having women exercise their freedom in Christ to pray and to prophesy, to participate and to lead in the worship gatherings, they were doing it in a way that whether intentionally or not was having the effect of minimizing and disregarding and even undermining the God-ordained distinctions between men and women. And so what it was doing is actually drawing attention away from God and onto people. And again, that's obviously a problem because whatever we do in life, whether that's in our corporate gatherings or in our life, that takes the attention and the focus off of God and onto ourselves is a problem. But more so because, again, when we minimize the distinctions that we have between Men And women. when we disregard those, when we undermine those, what we're doing is we're losing this full picture of the image of God. And so we need the equality and the distinctions between men and women to do that. And so what we see Paul doing is giving this church some instructions that the the early church as a whole adopted in an effort to embrace and to affirm both this equality and this distinction between men and women in their gatherings. And and the basic gist of the instruction that we see is that, that when men were actively participating in the gathering and they were praying and prophesying, that they should do it with their heads uncovered. But that when women were actively participating in the gathering, when they were praying and prophesying and leading and all those kinds of things, that they should do it with their heads covered. Now, in some ways, this has to do with some historical and cultural situation that this church was in. Commentators and historians don't have absolute clarity on exactly what that meant or what was inferred by that, but we see Paul talking in verses four and five, how it would have been dishonoring for a man to wear a head covering while doing that and dishonoring for a woman to not to do it. Similarly, in verses, similar to the way in verses four, five, and 14, he points out how it would have apparently been shameful for a man to have long hair or a woman to shave off her hair. And so there's, there's some kind of cultural thing going on there. But I want to be really clear. Uh, the, the instruction that Paul gives that the early church adopted was not merely an appropriation of cultural norms. You see, when you do the digging on the historical and cultural backgrounds for head coverings around this time, what you find is that they were very commonly used, but for all kinds of different reasons and purposes. In the Greco-Roman world, their use and meaning vary depending on your wealth or status or what gods or goddesses you worshipped, and sometimes only men wore them, and sometimes only women, and sometimes both, and sometimes neither. And in the Jewish context specifically, we know that priests would wear head coverings when they were uh, leading and praying and doing all these kinds of things, but it's unclear how the rest of the community used them, whether some people think it's just men who wore head coverings, some people think it's just women, Some, it's not clear. And so the the point I'm just trying to make is that the instruction about head coverings wasn't merely just some appropriation of cultural norms. It's not just 100% this cultural thing, and so therefore we can just go ahead and chuck it because, you know, we don't really like it or whatever it is, right? Instead, it was a symbolic way that verse 16 tells us that the early church as a whole that this community of believers as a whole, not just in Corinth, but that Paul says the, the churches as a whole, they used as a visible affirmation of the distinction between genders, while at the same time embracing the equality of men and women as they gathered for together for worship. And so it wasn't just this, it wasn't just this cultural appropriation, but it, it wasn't as well an arbitrary symbol either. You see, it was a contextualized picture that pointed back to a, a timeless reality that Paul reminds them about in verse 3. He says this, The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And understanding what's going on in verse 3 there is really the key to understanding the whole passage, the passage as a whole. Because it not only brings us back to the equal and distinct ways that men and women are called and created to bear God's image, to reflect him, but it it highlights how the, the fullest and truest expression of what it means for both men and women to bear God's image is wrapped up in both of us reflecting Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us who, who Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the perfect image bearer. Jesus is the perfect image bearer. And so for both men and women, our call is to look to him the one perfect image bears. as we seek to do that. And so in verse 3, we see Jesus playing these two distinct roles. The first is, is that of head, right? It says in the, verse, the first part of the verse that the head of every man is Christ. And in the Bible, this concept of headship, it has undertones of authority or leadership, but overwhelmingly when it is used, especially when it's used of Jesus, the focus is on his selfish, and selfless and servant-hearted leadership of others. It's not about being in charge. It's about taking an initiative to create an environment where those who are under your care can flourish. And so whenever you hear that word headship or head in the New Testament, what you should be thinking is self-giving and sacrificial service for the good of others. Self-giving and sacrificial service for the good of others. That's what headship is all about in the New Testament But Jesus, we see, doesn't just play the role of loving head, who sacrificially serves. He's also a loving son who himself gladly and willingly is under the headship of God the Father. Right? The verse three, it ends with, by saying how the head of Christ is God. And so we see how Jesus is not just a head who who leads and serves, but he's one who is willingly submits himself to the headship of another to God himself, to the Father himself. And this idea of submission in our world is often seen as demeaning or diminishing. But the reality is is that in Scripture, that's not the case. You see, submission is about playing the role we saw in Genesis 2 as a necessary and indispensable ally. By having a, a voluntary attitude of humble cooperation, of a willingness to help carry a burden and to help assume responsibility... Submission does not equal silence or unconditional obedience. Again, just look at Jesus, right? You see him constantly in communication with the Father, expressing his feelings and concerns and all those kinds of things, his emotions, making, making his, that things known. But in the end, he's not working to advance his own agenda, but instead the will of the Father, whatever that means. And so in verse 3, what we see is that Jesus is playing these two roles, one as head and one who is under headship. And sandwiched between those two is the relationship between men and women. Right, Paul writes that, that the head of a woman or a wife is man. And the point Paul is making here and that he fleshes out much further in Ephesians 5 is is how Jesus is showing both genders the equality and the dignity of the distinct ways that they've each been called to reflect his image by playing his roles themselves. You see, men are called to reflect the image of God seen perfectly in the person of Jesus through their loving and sacrificial servant leadership of all those under their care, especially their wives. And women are called to reflect the image of God seen perfectly in Jesus through the attitude of a willing submission to the loving headship of the Father. Kathy Keller, I think she just so helpfully points out, she says, both men and women are called to play the Jesus role as we seek to live out God's image-bearing, our our lives as God's image-bearing representatives. See, these distinct reflections of Christ they get worked out most clearly, I'll be honest, in the context of marriages. And the Bible is very clear that not every man is the head of every single woman, nor should every woman submit to every man, right? It's not just like this un, you know, like unqualified statement. And it doesn't mean that if you're not married, you're off the hook. As a man, we are called to uniquely reflect Jesus in the ways that we selflessly and sacrificially serve others. Not living for ourselves, but instead sacrificing and laying down and even dying to ourselves so that we might lift others up and see them flourish and become all that God has made them to be. And as women, you're called to uniquely and beautifully reflect Jesus by being characterized by having a willing attitude of humble cooperation and supportiveness and coming alongside in contrast to a self-centered mindset or being critical or endlessly nagging, and either of these roles are missing in our marriages specifically or in our church body as a whole, then what we are missing is an essential part of the image of God in the way that we live and reflect him as people. And so getting back to the idea of how this relates to all that head covering stuff, the the idea was that in not wearing a head covering, the men were reminding themselves and one another of their distinct call to bear God's image and to reflect Christ in their headship. And that by wearing a head covering, the women were reminding themselves of their distinct call to bear God's image and reflect Christ in their willingness to be under headship. Now, just a quick side note here, in verse 10, there's, there's this section where it talks about how women should have a, a authority over their head. And I don't usually do this because the reality is our translations are very good, and there are very few places where I would ever quibble with anything really, but this is one of them. Um, I think that word that's translated authority is, is just really not helpful. Um, And the reality is, is because in the, in like nine examples in the chapters just leading up to this, that same word is translated always as rights or as freedom. In every, in every one of these bunch of examples, that same word is translated as rights or as freedoms. Literally just a couple verses previous to this at the end of 10, the same thing happens, Right? And so I think translating it that way is much more helpful, right? Because the head covering for women was about having this visible picture of their calling to reflect Christ by willingly being under headship like he was, which is characterized by a submission that was not coerced and not demanded and not just about authority, but it was about a free choice to glorify God. And so in the willingly choosing to wear a head covering in this specific setting, the women were reflecting this willing choice that Jesus made to submit himself to the Father. And there's this beautiful picture of Jesus that was intended to be shown in that setting. Now, it's at this point that some of you are looking around, and you're seeing no one around here is really wearing a head covering, right? right? When when Steph was leading us in worship, she was not wearing a head covering. If you're here other weeks, when other people are, other women are up front and leading and all kinds of things and praying and doing all kinds of things, they're not, they're not wearing head coverings. And, and, the, and none of you think when that happens, like when Steph's up here leading without a head covering, none of you are like, oh, she's trying to be a man. Like, like, I can't believe that she would do that. Like, she doesn't care about the distinctions between men and women. None of you are thinking that. And if you are, we have a much bigger problem to discuss, right? Because, <laughs> like, that is just a level of crazy, right? Like, we're not, it's not the thing, right? See, in River City, we're not dealing with the same issues that the early church was dealing with, right? In the early church, they were creating a community in the context of a culture where women were always behind the scenes. We're seen as inferior or we're not invited to participate in the gatherings. That's not the case here. That's normal in our world. See, women included in participating in those things. Furthermore, in our context, if Steph, for example, again, sorry, Steph, I'm just making you awkward as you're here this morning, but if if she was to wear a head covering while she's leading worship, that would actually serve the opposite purpose in our context because everyone would be like, what the junk is going on? Like everyone, why is she doing that? I don't understand that. What is happening, right? And that would actually be serving the exact opposite purpose, right? Of taking the attention off of ourselves and onto Jesus, right? Furthermore, I think to add, we, we just do not see any other places in God's word where God commands women to cover their heads in these types of situations, right? And so I think the reality is, is that, is that this, the, the, the picture that the early church chose together to use was in large part the reason a lot why they did this, because it was dealing with a problem that they were facing. Where the role, having women serve and participate in the gathering was, was serving to just undermine that there were any distinctions. And that's not the problem that we're facing right now in our body. And so while the use of head coverings, I don't think is prescriptive for our context today, the timeless truths that this picture was meant to point to are. Like I said at the very beginning, the, uh, the big idea, the foundational principle that we see throughout the passage, it's, it's the importance of both men and women in the church choosing to embrace the equal and yet distinct ways we've been created and called to bear God's images. And as a church, we, we want to be deliberate about doing that. We want to celebrate and affirm the equality and also the distinction of men and women. And we want to be intentional about not undermining or diminishing or trying to disregard any differences that are, that are there now i'll just be honest with you as i've studied and prayed and prepped i don't think that this passage specifically is is meant as a corrective for our body it was meant as a corrective for this early church but i don't think it's really meant for us as this deeply corrective thing for us i don't see men or women intentionally or otherwise seeking to diminish or disregard or undermine distinctions between men and women in our body i I don't see that happening right Now, it may be a corrective for a background that you come from or an environment that you grew up in, but for our church, I think in a lot of ways, this passage actually serves more so as an exhortation, a reminder for us, one, to make sure that we are pursuing and not just permitting women to participate and to serve and to lead in our gatherings. Again, I said in the beginning, the fact that Paul is giving instruction about this happening means he wants it to happen and he wants it to be a regular part of their gathering. And so should we as God's people, because women are essential and indispensable as we seek to be God's image-bearing people and to minister on his behalf in the world. But secondly, I think it's a reminder for us to embrace and to embody our callings towards headship and towards being under headship like Jesus did. So that in either way that God's created and called us to serve and to live out our identity and calling as His image bearers, that, that we're willing to submit ourselves to what He's designed us for. And the reality is that embracing and embodying a christ-like sacrificial and servant-hearted headship as well as a humble and willing submission goes against the very grain of our culture as well as our default desires and motives you see we want to live for our own glory and for our own good not for god's glory our default mode is to put our own needs first and our own priorities first and our own desires first and we, we tend to embrace the message of our culture which says that your gender is ultimately about you and not about God and that it should be expressed in whatever way that you seem feels best to you or disregarded altogether if it doesn't fit the way that you feel like that, you, that way it fits your needs. I just need to be clear. All of us have done this. As men, we see the call to headship as being about having authority, And being in charge and being able to get what we want instead of dying to ourselves and laying down our freedoms for the good of others, for the good of those who are under our care. Oh man, God was convicting my heart about that this week. If I'm honest, I've been realizing lately this, uh, there's just been a bitterness in my own heart towards my wife lately just because I feel like in some ways our personalities are so wildly different and I feel like sometimes it just feels like she keeps me from living the life I want to live, however it is, right? And I'm realizing that, the, that, that that feeling that I have is rooted in the fact that I am not loving her as Jesus has called me to and that I see my role as a husband and as being ahead is about me, about getting what I want, about her helping me get what I want. And that is so radically out of line with how Jesus calls me to love and serve her as a husband. That is absolutely opposed to God's good design. And the invitation for me as that is to lay down my very life for her good and for her joy. And the fact that I feel sometimes like she's keeping me from something is a realization that I have missed entirely. Jesus call for me to love and serve her as he does for me. Man, I don't know if you're here this morning and that might speak to you, but God's word challenged my own heart this week. Women as well. I think often can see the call to submission as degrading or humiliating instead of seeing it as a beautiful way to image Jesus' willing and glad submission to the Father. I think all of us, wherever we're at, we need to confess and to repent of our self-centered mindsets. The way we view all of life, the way we including our own gender and the distinctions and equalities we have as being about us we need to confess and to repent that we have viewed this world and our lives and our marriages and our churches as being about us. And the reality is that we will only be able to do that if we see first that Jesus selflessly gave himself for you. As the head of the church, he laid down his life for you as the son of the father, he humbly submitted to the father's will, doing everything for the father's glory and not his own, so that you might be forgiven and cleansed and made new and, get, and set free from the bondage of sin. And that you might be shown how to live out your true identity and calling as you look at him, the perfect image bearer. And when we see how Jesus did it for us, We see the inherent goodness and dignity and beauty of how he calls us to do those things unto him in ways that are equal and yet distinct as men and women. And so there is no greater calling and no more life-giving purpose than to give yourself back to the one who has given himself for you. And to say that with every fiber of your being, you want to live and exist to reflect his glory so that others might see him for who he really is and might be captivated by his beauty and his goodness and his glory. See, there is life in giving ourselves to that purpose in which there can be found nowhere else. And so what we're doing in communion every week as we remember and as we celebrate that together is remembering how Jesus selflessly gave himself for us. The bread reminds us of Jesus' body which was broken for us as he lived the life that we did not, bearing God's image perfectly as we do not. And the drink, it reminds us of Jesus' blood which was shed for us as he paid the price that the that that the penalty for all the ways that we have failed and rejected God's purpose and identity that he has given to us. And he receives that penalty for us. And so communion, it, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a change for us to remember and to again set our hearts and minds on the selfless love and leadership and submission of Jesus himself. So that as we are captivated in love for him, we would out of love for him be fueled to give give our lives back to him. And so if you're here today and you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and if you look to him to be the one who gives you your identity and your purpose then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you to go back and take communion. There are two tables, one in the back on the left and on the right, and, and there's, there's bread there as well as the dipping cups that we've used, and whatever way that you see uh, works best for you, that's great. We'd just love for you to join us in communion. But if you're here this morning and, and you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and if you have any interest in submitting to him as at all, I just want to encourage you, you are so welcome here. I am so glad that you would join us. And just to say you are welcome in our church and you are welcome in our community, and your process and questions are absolutely welcome here. But I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. See, communion is about remembering and celebrating all that Jesus has done on our behalf. Instead, I would encourage you, if you haven't yet submitted to Him, choose to submit your life to Him first today. Choose to give yourself. Put yourself under his good authority. That's the call for every single one of us, men and women alike. That we might reject the call of our culture to live for ourselves instead of embrace our identity and purpose to live for God's glory. There is life and joy there. There is nowhere else. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are glad to get to study your word together God, we have come to a challenging topic, contextually, theologically, culturally, it's tough. And so God, we ask that you might graciously cause the deep and timeless truths of your word to sink deeply into our heart. God, if there's been anything that I have said this morning that has been unhelpful or out of line with your desires, I pray that you would just cause that to, uh, to be swept from people's hearts and minds. but Jesus the timeless truths that we see in your word would you cause them by your grace to sink deeply into our hearts and out of a love for you would you compel us to give ourselves towards reflecting you in the equal and distinct ways you've asked us to as men and women so God as a people we might bear your image fully and rightly and that people might see and understand and experience and encounter your glory as they see us, your people, living for you. God, we can't do any of that without you. We need you. Amen.